I'm turning this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11 and verse 5. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 5. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves? And our title for our thinking this evening is How God Evaluates Prayer. But before embarking upon this parable of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to turn for a few minutes by way of introduction to the Gospel of Luke. And chapter 4, rather the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4 and verse 11. Mark chapter 4, verse 11. And he said unto them, the words of Christ again, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. And the Lord explained to the disciples, and it's not the only occasion, why he uttered so many parables, why so much of his teaching was cast in parables. And the reason he gives is this, verse 12, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Now, the reason why parables are used, because while so helpful and so useful, even to this day, to people who are interested, to people whose hearts are open to the message of the gospel, to people who have a sense of need and a desire and feeling to seek and find the Lord, those, these things are, they communicate to such people and they're clear, they are a mystery. They are a secret to all people who, as yet, have no interest whatsoever, are not drawn in any way to seek or find Almighty God. If I trust in this world, and I think this is a great place for me to prosper in, and I want to have what I want, and do what I want, and do as I like, and I want no talk of union with God, reconciliation with him. I don't want to hear such things. I don't believe such things. I don't want such things. Then the message of the gospel is somewhat concealed in parables. Oh, it can be theoretically understood by even a person who isn't interested. The way you come to God, the terms the way God will make himself known to you, it can theoretically be understood, but it won't register. It won't strike home. It won't interest you. You won't feel the truth of it and the need of it. Now there were people there, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. They were against these things. They didn't want them. They didn't want communion with God. Oh, they wanted to be priests and to officiate in the temple and have a living from it 
and have some sort of authority and rule over the people of that time and that place. But they didn't deeply want God or to walk with him or to serve him. So these things went over their head. And that is the explanation here, that seeing they may see and not perceive. These things are described as a mystery or a secret. Not a mystery or secret in that they are hidden. They're published throughout time, throughout the world. But they're a secret and a mystery to those who don't wish to understand them. And then the passage goes on, and it's this in verse 13. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable was the parable of the sower that he told them? It's a key parable. We won't go into it now. Know ye not this parable? How then will ye know all parables? If you understand the parable of the sower and its message, you understand all the parables. You can grasp them. You can see how they work, how they present Christ, how they speak of forgiveness and salvation, because every parable contains the message. From one point or another, every parable is about reconciliation with God, approaching God, being accepted by him, finding and knowing and walking with him. They all boil down to that and teach other things on the way. That's what the Lord said. Unto you it is given to know the mystery, the secret of the kingdom of God. And to those who don't get the parables, don't grasp them, don't want to know them, there is no forgiveness, he says. There is no conversion. It's all about, to use good old-fashioned language, the parables are all about being saved. And every parable, its first and most important explanation or interpretation is about being saved. So with that in mind, if you don't mind my introducing things in that manner, we come back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11 and verse 5, the parable of the friend at midnight. And Jesus Christ the Lord said unto them, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Now the first heading for our very brief thinking tonight is this, a great need. This parable is about a great need. And in the culture of those days, in that region, hospitality was essential. If a friend came to you in need from a long journey, it would be a disgrace and shameful if you were not able to provide hospitality. And of course the friend is quite likely to come at midnight and late because all travel was conducted late in the day. Because of the heat of the day, Journeys began and ended when the main heat had passed. And so you might well arrive at your destination 
very late. There's nothing scandalous or unusual about this late arrival. But this man is poor. But he has no spare food and nothing to offer. And it is a shame for him. So within his culture, don't forget it's a parable. It's an everyday thing that is in the parable. But it's going to picture something massive and eternal and spiritual. But the parable provides an everyday picture of the great need of someone for help. That's the first part of the parable. It's unusual. This parable is between the teaching of the Lord's Prayer and the great verses which speak of seeking and finding the Lord. Ask, seek, knock. So it's obvious that this parable is about being saved or being converted to be positioned between those two things. There's nothing else it can be about. How to pray and how to find the Lord. And there in the middle is this parable. So it starts, salvation, coming to God, begins with a great need. And so we ask, have you had a great need for meaning to life? You've been going along thinking, I don't want to know about God. I don't want to discuss or hear about these things. I'm not interested. I live life as a materialist. I don't want to know about so-called spiritual things. I don't believe in them. I don't accept them. But something's happened. Something's happened to you. And you begin to have a thirst or a need. Well, the Bible will tell you it's the Spirit of God at work. But suddenly you feel you must know the answer to spiritual questions. Where do I stand in relation to my Creator, in relation to Almighty God? Will I be accepted by Him one day? Am I acceptable to Him even now? I must have answers to these things. They begin to be pressing and urgent. Without this sensation, this opening up of the mind, all these things will remain a secret, a mystery, because you'll have no interest in them. That's the message of the Lord and the meaning of this parable. So here's the friend at midnight. He has a great need. And there's somebody he can turn to, to help him meet that need. Oh, may you come to see the futility and the emptiness of life lived just for things and possessions. May you come to see the fact that life and everything around you is given by God and there's an ultimate purpose And there's an eternal destiny. Well, in the parable, the man knew someone to approach for help. He knew somebody who was well-to-do and would be bound to have spare provisions and was open to being called upon. And so he decided to call upon him. A friend of mine, he says, in his journey has come to me and I have nothing 
to set before him. And it's so with us. When you have this concern and this sense of need, perhaps you begin to pray. Oh God, if you're there, show me. Show me what I have to do. Show me something. Solve my problem, my pressing problem, whatever it might be. Help me. What will happen when you go to God? Well, here's the teaching of the parable, and it's a shock. It's a surprise. Verse 7, And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. It's a rebuff. The friend says, go away. It's an inconvenient time. I've retired, and my children are in bed with me, not necessarily in the same bed, though it may have been, but probably in the same room, certainly in the same house, have all retired. This is too inconvenient, too troublesome. Trouble me not. There's a rebuff. What does it mean? Well, it means this, that so often when we begin to think and we approach Almighty God, we are rebuffed too. A great theologian centuries ago, John Owen, put it like this. He said, for most sinners, when they first approach the door of Christ and they call out for help, the door remains firmly shut. And it does. A rebuff from Almighty God. There's no answer to my prayers. Nothing happens. My most pressing problem is not solved. What's happening? What's gone wrong? Well, the parable gives the solution. And it's in this eighth verse. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, that's an interesting word, because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many loaves as he needeth. This man doesn't get heard at first. He is rebuffed. It's not the only occasion this is taught in the New Testament. On one occasion, Christ was approached by a woman who was Greek. She was a Syrophoenician woman, and she urgently needed healing for her daughter. And the Lord rebuffed her, and he put her off. Inconceivable. Shock. Surprise. Why would the Lord do that? Because he was evoking from her a better approach, a more enlightened approach, if I may put it that way. This man, initially, he knocks, he calls out, he's rejected. What does he do? He persists and he calls out more loudly. And he knocks more heavily, more vigorously at the door. 
His, he wants to get across to his friend, is an urgent case. He's desperate. He's so embarrassed. He must be helped. And he pleads and knocks. And then he's answered. Now this is a lesson for us. He must understand, of course, that in the parables of Christ, not every element of the parable works strictly well. Because everyday stories are used to describe mighty spiritual things. This parable in depicting God in terms of a man who says, go away, I can't get out of bed to help you, isn't intended to suggest that God is in any way disagreeable or reluctant to help. The contrary is true. All that it gets across to us is we may be rebuffed. Why? That's what we want to know. Why will we be rebuffed? Maybe I'm approaching God for the first time. I have a certain anxiety, a seeking spirit. I've never had this before, but now I want to know, and I want an answer to prayer, and I feel a need of him. But there's a problem. I have no conception of my unworthiness and unfittedness and my sinfulness. It hasn't come home to me. It hasn't registered. I can bowl into the presence of God and say, God, now I'm interested. Help me. I've changed my mind a little bit about you. Do something. Help me. You may be rebuffed. You need to know there's a great problem. The problem of sin. The problem of guilt. That massive mountain of sin in the background of my life. All the thoughts, words and deeds that are wrong. That are against the commandments and the law of God. That are offensive to him. And he is matchlessly holy and pure. He cannot overlook those things. God in his nature is holy and just and he must eradicate and deal with sin and I've got no awareness of this. I've never repented of my sin. I've never thought of repenting of my sin. In fact, I'm conceited enough perhaps to think I'm pretty good and better than other people. I won't get a reply from God In his kindness, he will press me away. I remember a young woman years ago. I expect that today, I haven't seen her in decades. I expect she'd be in her 70s. But I remember this young woman years ago when she was a youngster. And there wasn't anything she couldn't do if she set her mind to it. Somebody challenged her and said, you couldn't do this. So she said, I'm going to. And she got herself a job in that sphere and worked her way up to the top. There was no society she couldn't join, no accomplishment she couldn't win and gain. She was just made like that, multi-talented. And then... She wanted to seek the Lord. She wanted to find him. And you know, 
she couldn't. He wouldn't hear her. He wouldn't respond to her. Her prayers, as they say, hit the wall. She could get nowhere. Was God being unkind? No, because it marvelously humbled her. And she came to see, I cannot get to God except by his mercy and his loving kindness. His grace, we call it. The grace of God means his undeserved, unearned kindness towards us in forgiving our sin, saving our souls, giving us a new nature, changing our lives, giving us freely citizenship in heaven. It has to be free. We can never deserve it. We can never earn it. And then she came to know the Lord. It's a similar thing that's going on here. God won't answer my prayers. Maybe we're not repenting of our sin, seeing our need of his free mercy, seeing his holiness, realizing the multi, mighty gulf that is between us, and going to him with urgency and longing and need for his cleansing and his forgiveness. Maybe there's another problem. Maybe we have no conception of the cost of salvation to God. It's kind of in the parable. He went to this friend who he hoped would help him at midnight. He would have to rouse himself and get out of bed and move around in a kind of stupor, gathering up loaves and other things and answer the door and help his friend. He was expecting the friend who would be his benefactor to do something difficult. But his need was so great, he pressed him. And there's something very difficult for God to do. Oh, it's not worthy to be described in terms of someone getting out of bed and suffering some inconvenience. God had to do a tremendous thing. There is only one thing that has ever been hard for God to do. To God, everything is easy. He can create the entire cosmos at a word. There is nothing he cannot do with ease. There is no task that dents his happiness and bliss except one. And that is that the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ the Lord, had to become a man and had to come to the cross of Calvary and had to call for his Father in heaven to pour out upon him the crushing eternal weight of punishment on behalf of all who would ever be forgiven. He had to bear that compressed hideously, impossibly, into the space of six hours on Calvary's cross in order to pay the price of sin for all who would be saved and seek him. 
That was the hardest thing God could possibly do. The only hard thing God could do. That Christ incarnate, God and man, in his holy soul, should suffer the consequences of our sin and the ugliness and horror of it is impossible to conceive. Whatever caused him to do it, no man could atone for my sin. No angel could atone for my sin. Only God could withstand the eternal punishment of sin on my behalf. And it was the immeasurable love of God that led him and drew him to do it. And he saw all those for whom he died. Isaiah 53 tells us so. He could see them in his mind. And in love for them, he suffered and died and took away their guilt and paid the price of salvation and eternal life for them. Amazing, astonishing, the grace and the kindness of Almighty God. You have to realize that. If you don't realize the cost of salvation to God, that Christ died for sinners in his great love and mercy, how can God hear you? You come to him and you say, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, change me. I realize I'm utterly unfit. Forgive me and make me a new person. Change my very nature. Make me thy child. Lead me to heaven. I know the cost. I know what Christ has done. And I trust in him. And I believe in him with all my heart. That's how you have to come. You know, I don't want to give you the impression... That you have to get this right, and you have to get this right, and you have to get this right, and then you'll be saved. Can I give you a feeble illustration? I remember about almost 50 years ago, when I was new here, there was an inspection from the London Fire Brigade. They don't do it nowadays. But in those days, if you were a public building that could house a crowd within so many miles of Charing Cross, the London Fire Brigade came to inspect you every year to make sure you were fit and proper place. And what sticks in my memory is this great burly fireman going downstairs into the main halls down there and going to the crash doors, the fire escape doors, and kneeling on the ground in front of one or two of the doors and pretending he was a child and touching those escape bars on the door with his fingers. And if he couldn't open them with a light touch, he said, this isn't good enough. You've got to replace them. They've got to swing open at a touch solidly locked from the outside, but open to a touch on the inside. And the child could get out, and easily. A child with no strength. That's what it's like to come to God. 
When I talk about repenting of sin, it isn't easy. It isn't difficult, rather. When I talk about understanding the price that Christ paid to secure our forgiveness, that isn't meritorious. It isn't difficult. It's easy. It's like a child opening the fire door to escape. But we must see our unworthiness, his mercy, that Christ has paid the price for us. And then I'll add one other thing. We must be sincere and really desire a new life from God. If you go jauntily into the presence of God and secretly you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm quite a personality. I'm quite a capable person. All I need is a bit of help from God. No, the only way to come is whatever I foolishly say about myself. In God's sight, I am in total need of free salvation, mercy and pardon and complete reconstruction of new life. And if I come in that spirit with a real sense of need and trust, then he will hear me. Look at this parable. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, his importunity, what a word. It's not a perfect translation. The original Greek is very difficult to translate. It means a mixture of things. One of the senses is his shamelessness. But you can't translate it that way because that ignores other content in this grand word. It's not just shamelessness. It's not impudence. One modern translation I see says, because of his impudence. That's ridiculous. I think that's the ESV. How they get to that, they're ignoring half the sense of the original. It's a mixture of things. Because of this man's persistence, and let's add a little bit of desperation. Because of that, his desperation, because of his great sense of need, because of his trust in the friend. But he pleads repeatedly and knocks again and again. It's all these things. And probably the old-fashioned word, which few people know the meaning of, importunity, does better than all the others. Because of his desperation, his urgency, not his impudence, his readiness to divest himself of his pride. That would be a better way of looking at it. I was too proud to pray. Now I'm desperate. God must hear me. God must respond to me. I need a new life. Christ has purchased it for me if I believe in him. And I come and I plead, Lord, forgive me. Lord, change me. Lord, make me a citizen of heaven. Lord, bless me and make me thy child, 
Those are the things. Sometimes somebody who has a Roman Catholic background will say to me, what's the difference between Catholic salvation and Bible salvation? What's the difference? There's a huge difference. You know, the Catholic Church historically was an institution that started to go wrong soon after the 4th century AD and picked up all sorts of doctrines and ideas and ceremonies which are contrary to the things in the Word of God. But here's the main difference. The Catholic view of salvation, put very bluntly, is that you come to God and you find acceptance with him by your works. You trust the priests, you go to Mass, you honour the ceremonies, you do what you're told, you believe what you're told, and you're good and loyal to the Catholic faith, and by your performance and by your works, hopefully... God will be pleased with you. Bible salvation is entirely different. Not my works. Not anything that I can do. Not anything that I can earn. But by grace. Free, undeserved kindness from God that will wash away my sin and change my life and put me on the road to heaven. Reconcile me with himself so that I can pray and know his nearness and walk with him and love him and hear his voice in his words. These are priceless, matchless things. Dear friends, I must close. But look at this, the end of this parable. And I say unto you, verse 9, ask. But in the right spirit, and it shall be given you. Seek, which means here in this context, desire with all your heart, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh. It shall be opened. I'm out of time, dear friends. Oh, if God works in your heart and you begin to feel your need of him, come in the right spirit. Remember your unworthiness, your need of forgiveness. Remember the cost of salvation paid by Christ. Remember these things and be sincere and desire him and give yourself to him. And he will surely hear and answer your prayer. Let's pray together. Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, help us this night. Speak to our hearts. Arouse our souls. Deal graciously with us. And lead us to that place where we truly seek thee and find thee and know thee. We ask it in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, for his sake.
Amen.